to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and not often talked about. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Dr. Asanga Fernando, consultant cancer liaison, psychiatrist, and clinical director of the Advanced Patient Simulation and Clinical Skills Center at St. George's University Hospital, NHS Trust, London. Dr. Fernando is also an honorary researcher at King's College London and has published his work on integrating mental health support with prostate cancer care, which is what we're going to discuss today. Asanga Fernando, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for the invite. Very um, excited to be here. Real keen uh, advocate of your work. I, and I know a lot of our prospective patients and their families are going to be really interested to hear what you have to say. So I think I might just jump right in and ask you what you see as the most common mental health challenges that are faced by men with prostate cancer. Sure. Well, I, I think there are several. I think the biggest across not just prostate cancer, but cancers as a whole is depression, really. Um, I mean, when you look specifically, I, I think a really damning statistic of our time is that 73% of cancer patients diagnosed with depression, and you know, this is across tumor types in the UK a few years ago, mm -hmm. don't receive any adequate evidence-based treatment for their depression. And that's for a number of reasons, but that's a staggering statistic. Cancers across the board, about 17% of cancer patients suffer with depression at some point during their cancer journey. We know for prostate cancer, it's about that. We know it, it's increased slightly pre-treatment, dips a bit during treatment and increases again after treatment. Um, and we know that again, anxiety, you know, there's a huge number of prostate cancer patients with anxiety. And again, we see there's heightened levels of anxiety pre-treatment, it dips during treatment and picks up again um, after treatment. But I think depression and anxiety are key, key challenges facing the prostate cancer community, um, but not just those. I mean, if I may say, when you think about prostate cancer, it's actually, you know, a journey that embarks on several potential treatment modalities, including surgery, radiotherapy, mm -hmm. androgen deprivation therapy, mm -hmm. um, and chemotherapy. And actually, if you take each one of these treatments, actually, they can all have mental health and psychological impacts. I mean, if you take something like radiotherapy, some studies show that, you know, six months post-radiotherapy, potentially one in 20 people could suffer from severe depression, up to 16% severe anxiety, we know that actually, you know, with ADT, there's a good degree of cognitive impairment uh, with some agents. Now, of course, that's a lot less with more modern agents. But we know that there's a huge array of different mental health challenges. So, you know, it's not just the diagnosis of prostate cancer, mm -hmm. but it's the different treatments that also are likely to sort of make this a challenge. And also, I mean, if you add to the mix, the fact that we're in a pandemic as well. I think that's also something to be aware of. And, and, and my final point, I guess, mm -hmm. in terms of sort of the main challenges facing the mental health of prostate cancer patients is it's all well and good sort of thinking about mental health, but we've got to overcome this sort of barrier of looking at mental health separately. And that's where I would say it's actually all about functioning. So it's all about the patient. And actually, whether a patient is depressed, anxious, or whatever, the key thing with all of this is, you know, there's a marked change to a patient's level of functioning. So what they were like before. And mm -hmm. actually, I think you know, as a clinical community, I think we need to sort of think about how we're going to sort of better map onto those changes in functioning um, due to a number of different reasons, if that makes sense. 
Mm, no, it does. Um, I just wanted to pick up on your list of treatments and, and, you know, the various levels of both depression and anxiety that you cite. You didn't mention active surveillance. Is there a reason for that? Or do you have a, a few thoughts about the mental health challenges facing men undergoing that regime? We know that, you know, active surveillance, you know, has its own sort of, you know, mental health morbidity in terms of anxiety and things like that. And I guess the reality is, though, in terms of the sort of the published literature and things like that, there's a relative paucity of information yeah, um, around yeah. that. But we, we, we know that the same challenges exist. And, you know, mm, you look mm-hmm. at the rates uh, with regards to anxiety, then they're very, very high. The bottom line is with prostate cancers, depression is the number one take-home message and thinking about the different aspects of treatment and how we can better optimize uh, management of psychological health during that cancer journey, if you like. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to my next question, which is how are these being addressed and managed within the clinical community or, or are they at all? That's a really good question. I mean, I think the clinical community as a whole is waking up to these. So I think the reality is they are being addressed, but the clinical community has been rather sort of myopic about this and rather slow to address these things. So good that psychological support now sort of exists at most sort of cancer centers up and down the country. But, you know, I'm going to make the argument that we need a bit more. We need a bit more specialist sort of mental health support um, specifically. Um, I'm very lucky to work in a team with psychologists and counselors, but certainly there are specific needs. There's a specific group of patients with specific challenges that need psychiatric help. We need to make the argument that we need more specialist mental health support, but also um, that we need to think more about functioning and the sort of other side of things. So, you know, psychosexual support, certainly, uh, the impact on relationships, mm-hmm. uh, looking at uh, finances, all of these things. And I think crucially as a community, one of the sort of bugbears is that, you know, the mental health impact shouldn't be seen as an added luxury. And it kind mm, of mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, you can go and speak to your urological surgeon, you can go and speak to your uro-oncologist. But the, the fact that we as a clinical community have sort of only recently seriously begun to think about the mental health impact over mm-hmm. the last sort of, you know, 10, 20 years, I mean, 10 years, really, and begin to see that. And that's led to it, you know, not being seen as as much of an added luxury. But the reality is we still face this inequality where the mental health aspects of things are not seen as important. And I think the reality is, though, clinicians are having to um, recognize that there's a change with that because, of course, their patients tell them. Their patients tell them that they've had changes to their functioning. Their, their patients tell them that they can't, you know, take treatment X or, you know, that taking treatment Y led to uh, them feeling like this and had an impact on their mood or mm-hmm. had an impact on their relationship. And I think actually what you're seeing here is the clinical community begin to wake up to the fact that, hold on, patients are saying this. It's a time that I think clinicians really need to listen to this because after all, we don't operate in different silos. You know, you're not, I think a urological surgeon or uro-oncologist isn't just concerned with a prostatectomy or, you know, mm-hmm. what's going to mm-hmm. be happening with a particular sort of chemotherapeutic agent or ADT, mm-hmm. but, you know, actually wants to improve a patient's functioning. And until you recognize that uh, a key consideration in that is their mental health, um, you're not really going to improve that. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so it, it seems like it's kind of a combination of awareness, acceptance, and and resource, and and sort of optimizing that will lead us to sort of a more holistic approach to patients' function and their well-being. 
from the healthcare community, that's certainly what we're seeing. As more compelling cases are brought forward, you're seeing increased acceptance. Um, in terms of resource, I mean, that's a funny one because, you know, I'm not sure that argument ever properly, truly holds with regards to something like this. Not to use a rumspeltism, but... Um, you know, it's a bit of an unknown unknown. Unless you demonstrate the case, you're not really going to be building on that awareness and acceptance. And I think the resource, you know, the reality is when you do look at the statistics, when you do look at the impact that this is having on patients' lives and functioning, there's a need to think about allocating that resource in a better manner. One of the issues, though, is you have to bear in mind that as a clinical community, we tend to work in silos, um, which is why my job is quite unique in that I'm a mental health professional employed by an acute hospital trust, which is, I think, is a great thing and not employed just by mental health. I'm employed mm -hmm, by an mm -hmm. acute hospital, mm -hmm. uh, which is far less stigmatizing. And I sit within oncology and cancer. And actually, the reality is, you know, we tend to work in silos. And because we work in silos, don't forget the services are often commissioned and sit in, you know, that the, the structure in which services are governed are often in silos as well. So Thanks. I think breaking down those barriers by better integration is a huge thing. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we've been doing in a pretty novel way at St. George's. We've been using innovative sort of ways of using education, using sort of fantastic uh, actors who are sort of trained by patients and carers and thinking about, you know, approaches like simulation, innovative uses of tech um, as well to really sort of, you know, promote an integrative aspect of learning, which is having a big impact actually in terms of clinicians, whether they be surgeons, whether they be uro-oncologists or others, really, really looking at the mental health of prostate cancer patients. That's really fantastic. I mean, even your rather elongated job title, you're a perfect living example of, of the kind of approach that you advocate. I mean, very few people can actually say that about what they do. Yeah, I was going to ask you about some of these approaches to supporting patients' mental health, and you give and some examples of tech. Can you get talk a little, maybe just give an example of one specific area of support where you've seen real impact on patients' mental health? I think the first thing I want to say is, is the recognition, and this is really important, that different people will need different things. Mm -hmm. um, I think the reality is, you know, after any cancer diagnosis, I mean, NICE guidance sort of says that actually you'd expect about one in four people to need some sort of level of psychological, emotional or mental health support after one year of diagnosis, which is a lot more than I thought it would be prior to me working in this area. But I think it's because of such that high impact on functioning. Now, of course, that's not to say that everyone needs to see a psychiatrist, because that's just simply not true. And actually, you know, most people will require lower level counselling and psychology, um, and only very few will require psychiatry, actually. It's just really thinking about the fact that actually different people will require different things. But um, certainly, you know, there's been some fantastic work looking at sort of supporting patients with depression. And I think whilst there's been a lot of work in supporting patients with depression, whilst there's been a lot of work in terms of sort of specific drivers, uh, in terms of depression awareness, in terms of things like that, the reality is, though, we're still in a position where we need to do more and we need to engage with specific communities, the Black British community, South mm -hmm. Asian community, mm -hmm. sports communities. We need to think about destigmatizing things. Um, you know, we need to think about how we could better map onto data and think about things from that point of view. So mm -hmm. actually, it's not necessary or, or correct that a psychiatrist screens people's mental health all the time. What we need to do, actually, is be better at normalizing it so that actually 
GPs, CNSs, others can sort of mm -hmm. really understand, hold on, here's someone who needs a little bit more help and support. And that's certainly what we've seen locally with our team as well. Is It's, it's about sort of, you know, training the, the people that the, the patient sort of comes into contact with first. You know, we have to bear in mind, most of these patients now have been through COVID. So actually, you know, they've had to deal with horrendous levels of isolation. And I think just actually mapping and letting people know that there are graded levels of support that are actually evidence-based and actually can be very, very helpful. Mm, indeed. Um, it, it's a really important thing. So bringing this back now to the patient level, what would be your advice to a man newly diagnosed with prostate cancer on how to support his mental health? Everyone's different. And I think, you know, that's, you know, despite saying all of this, the key thing is, you know yourself better than anyone. And I guess, you know, really, really, you know, you, you are the expert in navigating your own cancer journey. And I think the reality is, you know, you're not alone. As this dialogue evolves, more and more clinicians are becoming aware of the impacts of mental health, uh, the impact on functioning. So I guess the first thing is um, to just recognize when that functioning changes and often it'll be your wife, it'll be family, it'll be workmates and others telling you that something's changed. We're taught as medical professionals to look out when we think about someone who's depressed. You know, we're taught as medical professionals to think about changes to their sleep, their appetite, weight loss, etc. But actually in cancer psychiatry, those things are less of an issue because actually they could be they could change as a result of the cancer or as exactly. a result of the treatments. The key sort of things um, that are pretty reliable markers actually are feelings of negativity that manifest in changes to someone's functioning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you've if you've got someone who's a lifelong Chelsea football fan who can't follow Chelsea anymore, feels no willingness to follow Chelsea or someone who takes real pride in getting up to, you know, go to work as a car salesman and they can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, there's something about that that needs addressing. Mm -hmm. And it might not jump out and say depression, but it needs addressing. So you know yourself and you know the changes that are happening. And I guess, you know, you're not alone. Seek help. And I think, you know, it's very tempting at this time to sort of, you know, we're emerging from a pandemic where isolation has been the sort of aim of the game for the last year or so to think, well, actually, I'm here on my own and I don't have the friends that I used to to talk to. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just about thinking about helpful coping strategies. And we know that it's quite easy to become isolated. We know that it's quite easy to turn to alcohol, for instance, and things like that. But the reality is help is there. And I think actually all of us as a healthcare community are getting a lot more savvy at being able to sort of, you know, point you in the right direction if you just sort of say something's wrong here. Mm -hmm. um, but listen to your friends and talk to your friends, actually. Talk to the people around you because, you know, they might pick these things up even if you don't. And I, yeah. I, guess, I guess that's a bit simple, but that's good advice from a mental health point of view. Excellent advice and, and very encouraging and very encouraging to see, you know, you in the role you're in and, and you know, supporting other people in the clinical community to embrace that. So thank you very much for joining me today. And I look forward to, to speaking to you again. This is such an interesting area. And I know a lot of our patients are really, truly interested in it. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you. A transcript of this interview is available on our website, where you can also access additional interviews, blogs, and reviews of several of the issues we've discussed today. Visit The Focal Therapy Clinic at www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. <laughs>